this episode of The Live Life, we're talking about gear, software, and certifications for lighting design on corporate events, and more on The Live Life. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Kramer. AV Beyond the Box. This is The Live Life, episode 29, Lighting Design for Corporate Events. Welcome to The Live Life, where we bring you influential guests and topics related to the selling, planning, designing, producing, and delivering live event productions. I am your host, Wallace Johnson, and today to talk about lighting design for corporate theater, we have a very special guest. Uh, He is the COO of TLS Productions, Mr. Doyle Martin. Hey, how are you, Wallace? Good to see you. Doing pretty good, Doyle. Doing pretty good. Awesome. So give the audience a quick background of how you got in the industry and a brief uh, synopsis of your journey to where you are today. Let's see. How I got in the industry, uh, I blame a high school teacher named Miss Barbara Sprout for actually interesting me in theater and giving me a path to technical theater and uh through that path to technical theater i figured out as i i got into my senior year and started looking at career options that the logical progression of that was getting into the av industry so uh that's a that's kind of i one of the few people that did it on purpose it was a it was something i wanted to do lighting was something that always fascinated me and that i wanted to get into and i wanted to be a lighting designer from a from a very early age and pursued that um i uh as far as my path through the industry um i i got in early doing some av which turned into which quickly turned into a rock and roll, both touring and doing stagehand work on local shows. Um, that turned into what at the time was a side gig uh, doing auto shows because the, the auto, sh- the way the auto show season overlapped the corporate and the rock and roll season made sense. The auto shows were a great way to do it. And in doing those auto shows, I got in with the, folks who are still doing the auto shows, which is a kind of our company's still our company's primary vein is we do a, we do automotive work and we do lighting and rigging and AV for the auto shows. So came up all the way through there and uh, you know, through the, through the years I've done numerous arena shows. I've done designs for, fashion um i did quite a bit of work with uh the miss texas pageants both the usa pageants and the uh miss texas america pageant so did a lot of a lot of pageant lighting and a lot of lighting for tv through that um and have done gosh countless number of uh of corporate shows over the years of of all types and all sizes everything from a a small stage with a single talking head to probably one of the biggest shows I've ever done was uh, a Novo Nordisk show where we had well over 600 moving fixtures and, uh, you know, we flew the CEO in and had a 60 foot deep stage with DJs and multiple levels. And it was a, 
it was a truly incredible corporate show. So, you know, done a little bit of everything over the years. So yeah, sounds like you've had one one heck of a journey. Um, what is it, it that you love been. about the uh, what is it that you love about the industry? You know, with everything that you've done, what is it that keeps you going uh, to where you're at now? I love the fact that we get to make memories. Um, it to me that's that really is the the defining trait of what we do, because let's face it, it's whether it's a rock and roll show or a corporate show or an exhibit in a, in a trade show, all we can really hope to do is have that one engrammed moment on somebody that they look back on and go, I remember that moment. So that's, I love knowing that on occasion I create a moment that sticks with somebody throughout their life you know, that somehow I affected them on an emotional level that, that they remember. And that's, that's what keeps me going and keeps me doing it. That's well, that and the paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) Paycheck's never a bad thing. Yeah. Getting paid for it is is a plus, a definite plus. (laughs) I recommend that if possible. Indeed. Indeed. So looking back um, over your journey, what's something that you would tell, you know, your younger self or somebody new who wants to get in the industry and really excel um, and, and, and have a, have a lifestyle and career out of it. I tell you, I, I, I think I like to think I was pretty good at this, but I'm sure I actually wasn't when I was much younger and starting <laughs> out in the industry. If you'll just listen and take advantage of all of those old guys who are on the show site that you think you already know more than they do. And you, you think you've already got the knowledge. There's, there's something that happens to a person through the years that gives them a really good grasp on it's, it's more than just how to do things and how not to do things. It's having seen so many people do it in so many different ways that uh, if as a young person, I would say, keep your eyes and ears open and understand that every gig, especially when you're starting out, Look at it as a learning experience and get as much as you can from as many people on every show site as you can, because all of that knowledge will eventually come back and help you grow and blossom into, into the career. Now, that's some great advice. I, I, I think coming up with my journey and, and excelling at a, at a younger age, that was one of the things I took advantage of was, you know, watching and listening to folks who have already done it and seen it done in so many different ways. Um, that I, I fraction myself now as a lazy person because it's like, eh, I kind of let other people do it and learn from them. And that way I don't have to make the mistakes they made. So it works out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and there's, and like I said, there's a, you know, the, every young person and it's, uh, it's part of growing up. Every young person feels like they've got it figured out. And if you can just overcome that enough to actually take the time to, listen to what's going on and watch what the older guys are doing and the way they're doing it. It'll be really helpful for you in the long run. I think I'm going to rename that presentation. I was telling you about shut up and listen. (laughs) (laughs) Good title. Not a bad title. at all. (laughs) Well, let's get into our main topic. And so, you know, with lighting design for corporate theater, really what I'm talking about is corporate events done in your typical ballrooms, your typical convention centers. Um, And so one of the things that, um, has been a while for a while is LED fixtures. Um, so the first question I kind of have for you is what improvements have happened um, that's impacting the decision-making process for companies that are renting or buying these fixtures to, 
use more LED on their events? I, from a from a company standpoint, one of the most important things that LED has done is it's made the ROI on the fixtures you buy so much better because you're not having to replace lamps. You know, it's uh, there's that from a strictly user standpoint. That same lamp thing means that the odds of you actually losing a light or losing a lamp during the show have gone down drastically. Um, Technology-wise, and this this is kind of overarching. It's This isn't only LED technology, but kind of all the technology out there right now. It's getting to the point where with with the massive amount of Chinese manufacturers and all the people doing all of the manufacturing, you know, it's, it's no longer that a manufacturer does everything in-house. They design their fixtures in-house, they spec components, and then they send it out to an OEM manufacturer who actually manufactures it. And what this has done is it's allowed what we in the industry used to think of as mid-level or low-level lighting companies, stuff that, you know, companies that we used to say, yeah, but they're, they're not professional-grade stuff, to actually be putting out fixtures that are professional-grade and that, that actually work for the type of ballroom shows that we're talking about today. Uh, in particular, I would say that you know, there are, there are companies who deal with the big lighting designers who do the great big shows that have to do the spec of the lighting designer. And the lighting designers are going to have a manufacturer or a couple of different manufacturers, and they're going to want those guys' fixtures. And the companies that deal with those guys primarily are going to buy those name manufacturers. Whereas a rental company who specializes in doing corporate theater type shows and let's say has an in-house designer or works with a specific designer who isn't so caught up in that it has to be this name brand, the client themselves and that company can reap a lot of benefits from looking at some of those I, I hesitate to call them newer manufacturers because they're not actually newer manufacturers. They're just guys who are now getting the kind of recognition that they deserve. I, and I'm talking about, for people who know, I'm talking about companies such as Alation in yep. the market. Um, Chauvet is starting to see a lot of stuff. Even companies like American DJ are putting out lines of gear that have some viability in the professional market now where you know, as, as recently as six or seven years ago, you wouldn't have thought of them as having viability in the professional marketplace. So that I think is a huge seed change in the industry where, uh, you know, myself as a designer, I don't spec a, I don't spec a specific manufacturer anymore. When I'm sitting down to spec a show, I spec, I want a 1200 watt, equivalent hard-edged light that will do gobos and give me a you know a, a variable frost that i have to have or right, right. i need something that's going to give me a shuttering capability and i have to have breakup gobos in it so instead of i think we're moving to a point where you're going to see the specs for lights become what you want the light to do and not this is the light I want because so many of the lights just, they it's getting to the point where every light is good now where, yeah. you know, for years that hasn't been the case. 
And with that, with some of those manufacturers you talked about kind of entering the pro space and now having a good quality product, is it is it helping with LED overall from a price standpoint? Because I remember LED, you know, many years ago used to be very expensive. And then with everything else is over time, things kind of marginalize and prices get better. But with more players coming to the market, has it really pushed the pricing um, to a more affordable space? Um, I don't know about affordable. It's made it, it it's made it comparable and comparable. And going back to the lamp and relamping argument, when you when you factor in, you know, a six or eight hundred hour lamp versus twenty thousand hours on an LED engine, your your cost savings becomes pretty drastic there. So if you look at it over the life of an instrument, the LED instruments tend to be a cheaper choice, especially for a rental inventory or you know, from a from a management perspective and an ROI perspective, the LEDs have really become the cheaper choice. Um, you know, there's a high-end systems right now is doing a fantastic job of putting comparable LED engines out at a price that's the same or lower than the arc lamp equivalents of the lights they're putting out there. Um, I really, you know, it's, I just got to see their new ballroom-sized uh, kind of 750 arc lamp equivalent light that actually has framing shutters, which is kind of the first light of that size to have mm-hmm. framing shutters, which is great. It's something for, you know, for 10 years I've been saying to manufacturers, we need something more compact for ballrooms that gives us framing shutters because, you know, for years we've been hauling in at VL 3500s and Mac Vipers and, you know, huge Mac 2K performance. Yeah. These huge lights into ballrooms just so we could get framing shutters. Now the, now that optics technology is catching up to the point where that's a viable technology in a smaller package. And that's, that's, from a design perspective, that's really exciting that we're, we're going to be able to be doing more stuff in a smaller package without having to haul the great big guns into the small ballrooms and just kind of having it look silly. You yeah, know? Yeah. Not only that, but when you're talking about a ballroom show, it's many times it's quality of light instead of brightness. And when you start having to think in terms of hauling in a 1200 watt light just to get the effect you need, or the, again, the, the shuttering, the framing that you need, all of a sudden you've upped the amount of light you have to use to compete with that light to keep everything balanced. So your show just got way more bright and way more harsh and it's a lot harder to do more subtle theatrical looks when you're pounding that kind of brightness in a small space. So uh, from a design perspective, it's, there's a lot of nice things happening right now in and around LED that's going to help that a lot. Speaking of the color and, and, and temperature of things, LED Leco's, they, they, they've been out and around again for, for a good little while now. Um, but where have they progressed? As I know, one of the challenges was always color temperature um, to really match the lamp look um, that so many were used to. Uh, they're actually getting really good. Um, we just uh, we just had an open house where we had a bunch of manufacturers showing a lot of their new stuff. And uh, 
a couple of the things there were the LED Leco's now available in 3200 and 5600 degree options. So you can get, you can have it in a daylight source or you can have it in that 3200 tungsten source. Um, there are a lot of purists who will tell you that an LED, just because of the wavelengths the LED creates versus the wavelengths of light that a tungsten filament or an arc lamp creates, it's never going to look the same. You're never going to get the same kind of quality of light out of it that you do. Uh, but with the better optics and some of the other stuff that's happening now, it's getting better. I also like the fact that we've kind of gone backwards in the LEDs. In the early days of LEDs, everybody wanted every LED engine in every light to be three or four color, you know, our, it's, it's RGB amber or RGB white or RGB amber white, you know, with a, with an extra cyan thrown in. And now the manufacturers have gone back and said, Hey, you know what? We had that color thing figured out with, with diacroic filters. Why not just make a really good white led engine to power this stuff? And that is, uh, that is beginning to make huge leaps and bounds differences in the quality of light in those LED fixtures. Um, just while we're talking about that, I saw something really interesting, which is a, some, uh, one of the manufacturers is actually now putting out a steel Parkan with a white LED engine in it wow. um, that is a PAR 64,000 watt equivalent that's a hundred watt LED engine. You can get it in 3,200, you can get it in 6,000 Kelvin, so you can get it in daylight or you can get it. And instead of having lenses that physically switch out, it's got a stepped lens system inside of it. So you just push the lens into different places and you get the narrow, very narrow. Um, I haven't actually figured out how to work it into the rental inventory and have it make sense for us. Mm -hmm. But just as something that I looked at that went, now, why haven't we had that for the last 10 years? I was going to say, why, well, why, why can't we put that in just a normal part? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Why, why is that suddenly something that's here and cool instead of that? You know, it seems like that would have been something we yeah, would have done start early first on. With that, right? Yeah, yeah but, uh, but, you know, really neat. Uh, and it's, like I said, it's a 1,000-watt it's a equivalent lamp at 100 watts. So when you start thinking about, uh, you know, from a – from a design perspective of designing spaces, if you start thinking about cafetoriums or small black box theaters and things like that, where, you know, the parkan is still a, a very predominant type of fixture, how much money can you save if you're running hundred watt parkans instead of thousand watt parkans and you're never having to replace a lamp? So yeah, that, that technology is, a uh, is coming a long way and people are again, that, the whole idea of let's just make it a white lamp and do all the stuff we used to do with the white lamp, the way we used to do it. I, I really think that kind of concept is catching on and I see things go in that direction a lot more in the future. From an incline standpoint, you know, in the corporate environment, it's mostly meeting planners um, and you have your producers out there from that aspect as well. But the rates of power, the cost of power in venues is uh, astronomical today. Um, and I think it may be at the point where it's like, look, do we start buying more LED to require less power on site 
Um, you know, is that something that end clients can start to benefit from if they're working with a partner that's providing them more of an LED rig than a, uh, than a lamp rig? You know, strangely enough, early on, that was kind of the case. And in some cases, it still is. But a lot of the equivalent LED lights and LED engines are actually almost having the same kind of power consumption that their arc lamp brethren does. So we're really, strangely enough, we're not seeing the kind of savings in overall power on shows that we thought we were going to see early in the LED revolution. Um, just because, you know, a, a really bright LED engine is these days running at around 600 watts, that's not all that different from a 750 watt ellipsoidal or a 750 watt arc lamp. So, you know, it's, uh, yes, there are some power savings, but I, I really don't know from an end client that they're going to see that. Um, the biggest, and we've had this argument internally, so it's, I think it's kind of funny that you're right, because we'll sit around going, there's all kinds of advantages to moving to LED from the rental company's standpoint. Yeah. Because, you know, it's not having to purchase lamps. It's a hardier system in general. So there's all kinds of advantages there. And it's in the internal conversations that are going on in the rental companies or what is the actual benefit to the client? You know, it's okay. We know there are all of these benefits for us to move the led, but what is the benefit to the clients and the real, what we almost always come to settle on is the real benefit to the client is the reliability of the fixture. Cause the, the one thing that the one thing the led engines have over their arc brethren and their, their tungsten lamp brethren inevitably is that you're not going to lose, you know, you're, you're very unlikely to lose an led source in the middle of a show. Right. It's just, you know, where, you know, a, a Leco can pop a, a, you know, Lord knows a 2k for nail. If you don't mm. pre-warm the filament and run it up quickly is going to go on you, you know, during a yep. show and leave a huge hole in your stage wash <laughs> um, with the led instruments. You don't have that problem. Um, in some cases, the weight difference between the LED fixtures and the other fixtures becomes an issue that the end client can look at just from the standpoint of ease of getting it up in the air and what you can and can't put in some ballrooms or in some spaces where you have very limited ability to fly things and do that kind of stuff. So, but, uh, yeah, it's for the end client. It's uh, it's a little less clear what the advantage is. Um, I know some people push the green advantage quite mm -hmm. a bit, and there is something to be said for that because we're no longer having to dispose of lamps. We're yeah. you know, especially the arc lamps that had the rare earth gases in them that are you know far from environmentally friendly. The uh, the LEDs helping to do away with that are huge. But again, it's really not a direct client. You know, it's not something the end client actually sees. They can feel good about it. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah. it's not a benefit they actually see. Yeah, no, no direct savings on the invoice there. Right, exactly. 
Cool. So, you know, there's a number of software tools out there that help design events. And a lot of them have seen the added the capability of pre-visualization within their software. So, you know, being able to see, you know, focus on stage with the lights, moving lights and ballets and so on. And, you know, even video playback and things like that. Why is it important for AV companies to incorporate the pre-visualization aspect into their workflow? Um, it's huge. Um, the, the primary and most practical reason is just timelines on site are getting so compressed. Um, you know, these spaces are turning over quicker. You've got less time to load in, get the show working, get rehearsals done. And somewhere in there, you've always got to find time to do that programming. Um, so from the, again, from the shop perspective, from the AV company perspective, what it gives you is it gives you the ability to get that show in the can, spend as long as you need to, or as long as you can, getting the show solid in the can, do the kind of intricate programming that you could never do on site if you only had five or six hours, and really deliver a superior quality product in the end. Um, the extension of that, which I'm sure is probably your follow-up question, <laughs> is uh, how does that reflect to the end client and why should the end client look at, well, why am I going to pay eight hours of visualization or yep. 12 hours of visualization for this show? Um, and for them, I would say there's two really good reasons. One is a direct spinoff on what I just said. If somebody, if you can give your lighting programmer 12 hours instead of four hours, you're going to get that much better of a show. Um, yep. I don't know any programmers for, for the most part, programmers are programmers because they love painting pictures with light. They, they actually do thrive on doing that as their job. And if you give them the time to do it, they'll look at the position of every light and how everything falls in. And as somebody who doesn't look at those kind of shows over and over and over again, you might not see the intricacies that are involved and, and how that's so much better than what you get in three hours of programming, but you and the audience will walk away knowing what you've seen is a vastly superior product to what you see on the shows where the guys have to come in and slap it together and get, you know, an hour and a half to program the three hours of show they have to do. Um, the other thing you're going to get is you're actually going to have a fresh programmer at your seven o'clock call in the morning when the show's ready to start, instead of having a guy trying to stay awake because he was up all night programming the show. Yeah, <laughs> and, no, that's what I was going to say, because the programmer yeah. be the last guy out the ballroom because he, he needs a dark night. Oh, so. I have spent a ridiculous amount of time in my life from you know, from 10 p.m. till 4 a.m. sitting by myself in dark ballrooms programming lights because that's the time period that's available with nothing else going on, you know. Occasionally fighting with a projectionist over who gets the room for that hour, but <laughs> generally speaking, the lighting guy's the one who really gets hammered, and it's the programmer who takes the brunt of it because he's got no choice. So, uh, you know, you're getting, you're getting a much fresher person 
and you're getting a much better, more detailed programmed show if you take advantage of that pre-visualization. Um, the other thing I will say that as a client, especially if you make the decision to do it early on, is you can actually go in and see what that pre-visualization looks like. So instead of being on site and having 30 minutes to review it and make the minor changes you can make, you can have them do, you can have the, your company do eight hours of pre-visualization and then you can schedule two or three hours for you to go sit and have them run the show for you. And you can say things like, well, I really don't like that transition or I don't like how that's going. And there's actually time to change it and make those changes where so many times on site, you're stuck with what the lighting programmer and lighting designer did not because they're forcing it on you, but just because by the time you're able to see what they did, there's not enough time to change it before the show happens. So it gives you an extra amount of creative control if that's important to you. You know, I, I don't know any meeting planners that creative control is important. To, so, <laughs> you know, might be a tough sell on those guys. Yeah. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of the programmers, you know, I always talking to many different people and, and between companies and designers, um, it's always interesting to hear kind of what the thought process process is that goes into consoles in terms of which one they like, which one they buy, which one they put in their inventory, um, how LDs have their own preferences. Like, what is the thought process in terms of, you know, like a company like TLS in terms of what consoles do you carry? compared to how LDs get their preferred console? What, what is that world like? Okay. Um, I'm going to start with LDs. And generally speaking, from the LDs point of view, for, or from the programmer's point of view, it's all about what you're most familiar with. Um, and that, for whatever reason that is, you're most familiar with that. A lot of the, a lot of your big rock and roll programmers um, are familiar with their consoles because the console manufacturers make sure that they get those guys in and get them trained on their console, yep. you know, and, and that they involve those guys in the development of those consoles. So those guys feel like I'm going to use that console because I actually had input on the way it works. Um, taking that down a tier and starting to talk more about the kind of guys we've been talking about all along, which are your ballroom guys. Again, it comes down to what console or am I most comfortable with every, you know, every programmer, I don't care who he is, wants the console he's most comfortable with because he's going to be faster on it. It's going to be easier for him. And he's going to be able to get the most out of the lighting rig with the console he's most comfortable with from a, from a rental standpoint, from a company standpoint, um, it come, it, it's kind of the same discussion we had on lights. It kind of first thing it depends on is what is your client base. Um, if your client base is the spec guys, the guys who are doing the really big shows, the guys who are doing the rock and roll tours, you're going it, not taking anything else into consideration. You're going to have in your rental inventory, what they want to use. Yep. So they're going to dictate what you keep in your rental inventory. Um, past that, 
when you get down again into the lower levels, the kind of guys we're talking about here, it's a lot of the kind of work we do at TLS, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners here are doing. Um, it comes down to to price versus features and what your guys are trained on and how easy the training is to get. Um, and how easy, uh, and also how easy the consoles are to get a hold of. So, right. um, we do a lot of we do a lot of Grand MA2. We do a lot of Hog, both. Um, most of our Grand MA2 stuff we have because it's spec stuff yep. for LDs. Uh, most of our Hog stuff we have is because pretty much any city in the country. I can get a hog console. You know, if I have a console that goes bad or my backup fails or my primary fails and I'm on a backup and I need another console, I know I can get something that's running hog four software anywhere in the country. Um, there is a huge divide between theater and corporate theater and rock and roll mm -hmm. corporate theater and rock and roll tends to be the moving light consoles. Yep. Um, these days it tends to be grand MA two hog four or a hog four product. They have numerous consoles these days, but something mm -hmm. that runs that hog four software, uh, followed, followed kind of distance distantly by Avalites. Um, Avalites is doing some nice stuff. Their consoles do good stuff. Uh, their problem right now is purely market penetration. There's just not enough people using their consoles yet, uh, which makes it really hard as a rental company to make mm -hmm. them viable. Because again, you get into that situation of, you know, if, if I'm in, in Indianapolis or I'm in Cleveland and my Avalite Titan goes down, yeah. you know, can <laughs> I make a call and get another Avalite Titan? Good to luck. back me up. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's something to look at. Uh, and then in theater, ETC still rules the day. I mean, yep. if you're talking to a theater LD or you're talking to somebody who works in, in the theatrical environment, uh, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to know ETC consoles. That's what they're going to want. And that's why we as a rental company have a number of ions and our rental company is just to support, those theater guys and those guys from that background that that's what they're used to. Yep. Very broad perspective, but good points. Yeah. Um, wireless DMX, as we talk about control, it's been around. Um, I would say most um, LDs and programmers and staff are, are comfortable with it for ground support fixtures, right? Cause you, you kind of want that hard wiring line in the air. Yeah. Has anything technology-wise uh, advanced in the area of wireless DMX that has teams more comfortable using it in the air, or is it still kind of have that same? You same know, I I think it comes down. I, I it's almost a generational thing. It, it really is, and as long as the, well, or until the younger generation of designers and master electricians get to the point where they're respond more responsible for the shows, you know, as long as the call it 35 plus crowd is still kind of the, the main guys who are responsible for the shows. I think you're always going to find them preferring a hard line. Um, much like, 
you know, if you go back 30 years and you look at microphones when wireless mics started coming out, all of your audio guys would make sure there was a hardwired mic, you know, on the stage. These yeah. days, they don't worry as much about it. They make sure they have backups, but that, that hardwired option isn't necessarily the go-to anymore. And I think that's kind of where we're at with the wireless DMX technology. I think it's solid. I think it's viable. I think it's very workable and it does a good job, but we still have an entire cadre of people who came up doing hardwired DMX who just don't feel comfortable not having a hardwire. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. no, totally um, the other thing I think is affecting it is that from a, from a console to rack perspective, we're actually starting to leave behind DMX or DMX wire. It's all starting to go network. Mm -hmm. um, and as we, I think as we more and more get away from, you know, DMX as a five pin connector, as we all think about it and we start going to RJ 45 network connections on everything where we're kind of headed now, um, I think we'll find the wireless option becoming much more prevalent and a lot of people embracing it a lot more because the network is the same, whether it's wireless or wired. And I think that comfort level will go up with, with the, you know, it, as the comfort level grows with it being a networked environment versus a dedicated environment, I think the wireless comfort level will go up correspondingly. No, no. I think I might've talked around that point no no bit, no I think, but... <laughs> you, I think you hit it kind of square on in the beginning because i never thought about it from a generational aspect of those who have a mindset of knowing what the worst of it was and kind yeah. of growing through that to the generation that never saw the worst so now they see kind of what today yeah. is, and they're, yeah, you know, they're the, more fearless to jump into it than right yeah uh, well yeah those those of us who saw the the first few small wireless dmx boxes that would fail miserably for no reason at all. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Once, once you have had that happen to you on a show, it's, it's really hard to ever trust it again, you know? And that's, you know, in our industry, that's the unfortunate truth of pretty much everything in our, you know, there have been, there have been companies that have gone away because they had one product line that failed miserably and nobody would go back to them again after that. Yep. Um, and there are companies that that are recently growing out of that painful experience of, you know, we had a product line that didn't really work. Now we've got much better products, but we've got to get over that hump of everybody going, yeah, but for three or four years, your stuff was bad. <laughs> you know, your <laughs> stuff just wasn't good. So it's in that in, in that way, we are a very unforgiving industry. Uh, I think part of it is because we are still an industry that has that mindset of it has to work. It has to be right. And every show, every show should be as perfect as we can possibly make it. And following that line of thought, you want to avoid any problems that are possible. And you know, that, that hard wire is just, it gives you that feeling of confidence that that isn't going to go away on you. Yeah. You it's know? sacred. And it's that, like I said, it's the mindset of you're only as good as your last show. So exactly. So let's move to, uh, to rigging and power. 
Um, so many venues now have preferred vendors and contracts that require you to use their rigging provider and their electrical provider. Um, so how does that affect the design process when you're trying to lay out a plot, design a show, and you got to now integrate these other people um, into the timing and workflow of what you're trying to do? Well, it's actually, I think you hit the nail on the head with your question, which is you have to integrate these other people in into your workflow. Um, as a designer, rigging in particular, power is not so much of an issue because power is still, you know, uh, power is still to the switch gear. Mm -hmm. So even, even if I'm, you know, even if I have to use Freeman electrical or GES electrical or Edlin electrical at, at a given venue, they're only concerned with their guys getting it wired in at the switch gear. What happens past the switch gear, they really yep. don't care about. So I'm still depending on my ME to, to figure out my cable runs and make sure everything's balanced and all of that goes fine. So the electrical part of it really isn't that big a burden from a design perspective, but rigging has become such a specialty. Um, and for good reason, uh, you know, over the years we've, as a as an industry we've grown up and over the years we've realized how much liability and how much focus there needs to be on the rigging and making sure that it's done correctly and it's done safely and all of the calculations are correct uh so as a designer it you know it used to be you would do the show and then hand it off to the riggers and emmys and they would run off uh, the workflow has changed in that now it's kind of you do a preliminary design, you turn it over to a rigging engineer who knows the venue. It's It could be somebody who works with the venue. It could be somebody within your company who is responsible for getting with the venue engineers and riggers and making sure that everything's right. But before you finalize those truss layouts and the design, it's incumbent upon the designer now to make sure he gets those guys involved and make sure that what he's doing actually works from a, from a safety perspective and from a practicality standpoint, because you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it behooves us as lighting designers. And I think it's something getting better over. It used to be that the lighting designers, all came from theater and all felt they were the most important person on the site. <laughs> um, over the years, it has become much more cooperative and collaborative and designers have, have begun to understand that they are actually part of that greater team and they have to work with that. And when you start talking about integrations now with rigging is that there was a time when rigging was pretty much maybe a couple of speakers in the lighting rig. Now rigging is, you know, do you have automation over the stage or are you doing some kind of automated rigging? It's, it's the speakers, it's the lighting, it's possibly projection. It's possibly yep, LED. LED video. It's possibly automated set pieces. There's so much more going into the shows these days, even the smaller ballroom shows that as as a designer you really have to understand that you have to be part of that process the other thing i've seen that really changes is that 
the job of lighting designer has been greatly expanded. Most lighting designers I know now, a, a more apt title for them now are production designers because by default, they're kind of the guys in charge of the plots mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in charge of actually making sure everybody's stuff gets onto the paper. Yep. So they wind up being the guy in charge of making sure that the audio is in the correct places and the video, you know, there's spots for the projectors and that it's all going to fly and work together. So that, uh, that, that lighting, you know, what used to be just a lighting designer is kind of more of a production designer role. And in that role, he's really got to be cognizant of the other departments and making sure he's talking and working with those other guys. So it's a, it's a greatly expanded position to what it was even 15 years ago. It's interesting you say that because, you know, we have so few certifications that are recognized industry-wide for the live event community. And one that is, um, even though it wasn't in the beginning, um, I think it's more prevalent now, is the ETCP rigging certification. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about this lighting designer who has now grown into this production designer and we're flying so many more things with LEDs and just unique truss designs in the, in the ballrooms and, and convention centers and things like that. How important is someone who's doing these drawings and, and now working across all departments with total weight of the show that's going in the air? Um, how, how important is it for them to be certified with a uh, ETCP certification? I, I, I really like the ETCP certification. Um, I think it's valuable. Uh, I think their requirements for continuing education is something that's really good and really useful because that's, you can't, having that certification means that not only did you cram for and pass the test, but it means that you are continuously asked to keep up with ongoing changes and features. Um, Having said that, I will say that Having the certification many times does not make you the most qualified person for doing the type of work we're talking about you doing. Um, I know most of the guys I know who are really good at it have the certification, but it was it kind of worked in the opposite way where they became really good at it and got the certification. Right. Rather than the certification happened and, you know, and that led to them being really good at it. Um, I do still think that it, again, I think it's more important that it's somebody who really understands what they're doing, certification or not. Um, Having said that, the certification at least gives you the confidence that, it's somebody who was serious, you know, it's somebody who's serious about that as a career. And at the very least, they understand the basics. Yeah. And I have to go back and look, I forget if there's a certain amount of years and experience requirement to actually test for that certification. Um, I don't, and I'm not a hundred percent sure either on, on the rigging part of the test. Um, It's not something I've ever gone through or done because that's just not, Rigging has never been my thing, um, other than when it has to be. <laughs> but uh, I, my understanding is, is that they don't actually that that's actually not a requirement. Okay. Um, 
I was actually talking to a rigger recently who that was kind of part of his problem was with it was that there isn't a, you have to spend this much time actually doing the job for real. You know, you, you have to show that you've been doing it on show sites and you have this much practical experience before you can actually get the certification. Right. Right. Um, so I tend to believe it's not, but I, you know, it, in anybody out there who's on that board, maybe that's something to think about. Is, yeah, you definitely. Know, yeah. There's always yeah. a certain amount of experience as they go into doing the job versus just being book smart and getting. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the book learning's good. The other thing about the certifications, which is both good and bad is it's, it's kind of gotten to the point where a lot of the certifications they'll do the three days worth of cramming course, you know, the, yeah, they'll the show up, camp. they'll say, yeah, come, come do the boot camp, And at the end of the boot camp, you take your test and you get certified and then you're done. I, I have a little bit of a problem with that because you know, that's basically you're cramming for three days. You're getting the test out of the way when all of that information is fresh in your mind. Yep. You know, my question is, how much of that do you remember six months down the road when somebody's asking you to do this incredibly intricate cantilevered weight calculation for a yep. rig? You know, and I don't know the answer. Maybe the answer is you're great and you retained all of that knowledge. But for most people, I don't think that's probably the way that works. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think generally in our industry, I, I think the good thing and the bright light at the end of the tunnel is in both a lot of the college programs and a lot of the trade programs, um, there is a lot more emphasis on actual real world education now than there used to be. Mm -hmm. um, even a lot of the theater, we, we do uh, at our uh, headquarters in Ann Arbor, Michigan, we do a lot of work with the college theater departments in the, in the Michigan area. And a number of them now have technical certification classes that are real world classes, not just the, the theater, you know, you know how to kick shivs, you know how to load pig iron on the, you know, it's, it's, and it's more than that. Now they're actually getting into, here's what you need to know to put a show into a ballroom. You know, here's, this is, this is how, you know, uh, uh, installation dimmer racks differ from road dimmer racks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot more education out there and there's a lot more focus on, on getting those kids who are trying to get those educations more of a real world experience. Um, and that's great. I do kind of miss the days when my advice to somebody wanting to be a tech would be, go find a company, start hanging out at it and, you know, you know, get your, get your feet wet, find out if it's something you really want to do and learn it from the ground up. Yep. Um, I, where you can show up for free and work. Exactly. You know, that's, that's something that, yeah, that's, that is a bygone error now, you know, and it's, it's probably a little bit of old guy syndrome on my part, but I kind of think we're missing something by not having that as much anymore. I would you agree know. as a young guy. I, I would agree. I yeah. Would agree. Um, you know, so looking back at the ballrooms, we talked about stuff going in the sky. Um, with the cost of rigging, completely blowing up budgets and causing a number of other issues, that's a whole nother show. Um, 
from a ground support rig of a show, is there any new gear that manufacturers have put out to make this process easier in the designs, or is it kind of still just this ugly eyesore in the middle of a ballroom? Unfortunately, when it comes to ground support, uh, to make to make ground support safe, you it, we have yet to figure out how to make the physics work so it's not an ugly eyesore if it's a ground support rig holding up lots of weight. Um, there are, you know, if you're in a really big room, you know, let's say if you were going into a convention hall where the beams were at 35 or 40 feet, um, certainly, you know, there, there are there are motorized towers now we could go in and put up a roof grid mm -hmm. you know a motorized roof grid and actually raise a roof grid and use that for rigging instead of trying to rig off the the still in the hall and at least have the audience kind of inside of the grid so that the eyesores aren't directly in front of them anymore yep um but even then it's there seldom is a cost savings, which is the first thing, you know, it's, that's about, like you said, it's because it's so expensive to rig, mm -hmm. but when you really look at it, if you start getting into ground support, you're almost always doubling or tripling the amount of trust you have to have. So you're, you're, you're saving money by not doing motors, but you're adding that money back in because you're adding a lot more trust than you had. Plus you're having to add bases. Plus you're adding a bunch of extra labor and you're making your build time longer because instead of building a straight stick of truss, motoring it up, you know, putting stuff on it and motoring it up to trim height, yep. now you've got to build it. You've got to build it at height, and then you've got to go back on and put lights and cable on it at height. Yep. So, you know, uh, e even from a cost-saving standpoint, I'm not sure – I'm just not sure that it's when you look at it from a long term. I'm just not sure it's a it's a cost effective. You know, I, I don't know that ground support is a cost effective solution. Where ground support actually is definitely something we look at a lot, and I've done it a lot, is just when the loads are too heavy to put in the room you're trying to put it into, mm -hmm. um, and then it makes sense to start looking at at how to build a ground support system to do that. And there are, I will say that there are a lot of times when I've worked with, uh, I'll, I'll go step away from my job at TLS for a minute, go back to my days as a freelancer where I worked with AV companies who for whatever reason didn't get somebody involved to make the ground support system they needed safe and applicable applicable to what they were doing where they should have. Mm -hmm. um, so in those situations, it really behooves you to make sure you're working with somebody who knows and understands. Again, it kind of goes back to our discussion about rigors in general. It's making sure you have a, even though you're not flying something, making sure you have a rigging engineer involved who can say, well, we have to have this much room. We have to have this much counterbalance and we need this much, much ballast on those legs to hold that ground, you know, to, to make sure that's a stable system to support that kind of weight on the ground. Um, the other thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with really heavy loads, even on ground support is 
sometimes you got to step back and make sure that that floor you're on mm. is actually going to support that weight too. Because, you know, floor. <laughs> yep, many times when you're in those ballrooms, you, you know, you, you don't have as much structure underneath your feet as you think you might. Um, yep. And that can be a real problem when you're, you know, especially you get into large amounts of LED video or you get into a automated set pieces and stuff like that that can be just ridiculously heavy. You can have real problems with just floor weight. Um, so again, just it's something that you have to make sure you've got someone involved who understands those, those processes. Very true. Speaking of floating floors, always makes it fun for the uh, camera guy <laughs> and uh, the Indeed. Ellen. Stay steady. No, it's just a floor moving. Yeah. Um, with uh, media servers, a lot of them integrating into uh, lighting consoles. How has that affected the modern day LD? Um, kind of now being part of the video process. Um. You know, there was, for a long time, we were talking about how, how lighting and video were becoming one. Um, and to some degree, that's happened. I think, uh, I'll go back to when we were talking about drafting and visualization and how the lighting designer has kind of become the production designer versus mm -hmm. lighting designer. I would say the same thing's kind of true that in a lot of cases, that lighting programmer or lighting designer has become the visual designer mm -hmm. for the show. Um, let me take you back a few years and use rock and roll as an example. When people, when they first started bringing cameras into rock and roll shows and we had projectors and screens that would actually allow live, you know, live video on the rock and roll shows, you know, doing cuts, trying to, trying to call a live show. I know I've got a number of friends of mine who made the move from being rock and roll LDs and lighting guys to being rock and roll camera switching guys. And the reason they were called upon to make that switch was because of the difference in timing that an LD brings to that position. And I think the same is, I think that is directly applicable to the media server question you just asked. Because a lighting designer and, and a lighting guy is trained to make those moves with motivation. Mm -hmm. You know, where they're, they're trained to, you know, that lighting move is, it's, the lighting's going to do that. That gobo's going to change because it's motivated by this and this is the way it's going to look. Um, whereas in video, almost all video guys who are trained on switchers and servers come from broadcast training mm -hmm. and broadcast training is a completely different feel for timing. Broadcast trainings about, you know, cut or dissolve. And it's more about making sure the image gets changed appropriately rather than what the actual transition is. Whereas an LD or a lighting designer comes at it from a, it's all about what the actual transition is. Right. So uh, I, I think we see so many people depending on those lighting programmers and even lighting programmers making the move to doing nothing but media server work because of that, because those, those transitions have gotten, 
gotten so much more intricate and there's so many levels of video now you can do on the servers and so many different transition effects that you can do that it kind of takes a lot more thinking about what the transition is rather than just we're cutting from this segment to this segment or from this view to this view. It's all about how do we make the transition interesting and how do we make the transition motivated by the other things that are going on. Um, again, I think I might've talked around your point a little bit, no, but, no, you, you, you but that's a, but that's kind of, I actually, there was a point in my career, uh, right before I made the transition into management and doing more what I'm doing now, where I did a whole lot of that, um, at the beginning of, at the beginning of the digital lighting revolution, where we first had, you know, moving, you know, project, you know, the, the catalyst systems yeah, and DL3s the, and yeah, the deal. Well, even, even back the DL twos and the DL ones. Um, I did a lot of programming on those because it was something where, you know, I, the video guys literally just didn't get it. Um, and, and I'm not by no what means, you know, by no way, shape, or form, am I knocking the video guys? <laughs> the angry they tweets do. are coming. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I know they are. Yeah, you know, but they do. They do a fantastic job of what they do. And you know, the last thing I would want to try and do is is set up a huge system with 17 different sources and try and get them all sized correctly and make sure that you know they're all going to the switcher correctly and they're all getting out to the right screens. But when it comes down to just that we're we're baking a cake and we're making we're making a bunch of transitions and we're doing them on the fly and we might need to move the image around and we're going to swing the light now, you know not only are we going to have it stationary on the screen but we're going to swing it down we're going to do something different with it down here uh, we're going to mask it differently over here and when it comes to that kind of stuff it's just one of those things where that training that most lighting designers go through that, that theatrical, you know, that deep theatrical training where you're trained to think in light and shadow and masking. And, you know, it's it, so many times what you don't see is just as important as what you do see and, and motivated cues and cue stacks and how all of that works. It really lends itself to that video server and that media server work and making that really flow. And from a practical standpoint, lighting guys are used to pushing a lot more buttons than the video guys are. So, you know, having, having those, all of those different parameters, instead of just having a preset set of parameter, you know, most video guys are want, want to go in and have a preset line of parameters. Mm -hmm. That's my parameters for this. And that's what the media server is going to do when it switches from time to time putting it on the lighting console or a lighting console and having a programmer do it means that he's way more apt to do it differently every time mm -hmm. instead of it being, this is the transition we're using for this show. It's this is the transition we're using for this cue in this show. Right, and right. the next cue might be a totally different set of parameters and doing a completely different set of things. And it's just a difference in mindset. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's where, that's where that's happened. And from a design perspective and a who's controlling that perspective, I think that's why we've seen a lot more lighting designers moving into that visual designer 
category for the show where they're actually they actually are controlling the screen content as well as the lighting design and the scenic design and all of that kind of all wrapped up into into one thing um that is probably more true in the rock and roll part mm -hmm. of the business than anywhere else but i see it happening a lot more in the in the corporate theater into the business and it's even starting to creep into the legitimate theater into the business as well as legitimate theater is starting to make more and more use of projectors and led systems and and uh you know i have a lot of theater folks who have shown a lot of interest uh not necessarily budgets but a lot of interest in doing video backdrops instead of traditional scenic backdrops for shows, Interesting. um, which is a great direction to go. Again, I, the, the, the want of them so far has eclipsed their budgetary <laughs> ability, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, uh, you know, that'll change in the future as more and more led panels and more and more projectors get made and the prices keep coming down. You know, that, that technology is going to make its way into a lot of places where, we haven't seen it yet, nor have we thought about it actually being a big player. Yep. Yeah, I, I have that show coming on post-LDI. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All about LED. Yeah. So cool. So let's jump into a segment um, I call the Final Five One Live. It's uh, five things about you, um, kind of in the industry, out the industry, um, rapid-fire session, so just shoot as you get it. Um, so who outside of the industry has inspired you the most? You know, as it, as opposed to an individual person, I'm going to say that all, all of the folks who choose to give their time and abilities to our armed services um, and, and and our volunteer services um, are are phenomenal to me. I I think that is that is of so much value both to our society and to the folks they get out there and help that it, it really humbles me to know there are people out there who, who still are putting kind of everybody else before their own needs. And it's, I, I never cease to be humbled by those folks and, and what they do for all of us. Definitely a, a humbling thing. Definitely a humbling thing. Um, you've traveled a lot. So what is your favorite place on the road that you have ever eaten? Ooh, that is a, that is a really good question. Um, I'm going to go with the city that the most favorite places are in, and I'm going to have to say Chicago. Okay. Um, for, for a city where you can have, you know, thousands of different dining experiences that are all over the top great it's really hard to beat Chicago. I'm sure the New York tweets will be coming in rapidly <laughs> on me after saying that, but, uh, I, sorry, New York, you know, I, I, I got to give the edge to Chicago on that one. And, uh, I just, I, yeah, from a, from an eating standpoint, I could, uh, I could spend a month in Chicago and eat somewhere different every day and be a happy camper. <laughs> oh, Chicago is my second favorite city. So speaking of favorite cities, what's your favorite city that you've traveled to? I honestly, I'm going to go international on this one and I'm going to say Sydney, Australia. Okay. Um, and, and there are a number of various reasons for that. Um, the, probably the top most reason being 
the people in, you know, for Sydney to be the size city it is and have the kind of population it does, the people in Sydney are just absolutely fantastic and so fun to be around. That's, I've always had, I've always just had a fantastic experience there. Um, and, uh, you know, having said that, I'll also say that I, I seldom go to a city here in the States that I don't have a fantastic time in. So, you know, it's just, uh, possibly because that is a trip I haven't made that many times and it's, uh, so unique. you know, it's, it's kind of imprinted on me and it is very unique. Maybe that, that probably plays into it a lot because, you know, I'm, I'm in Chicago and New York and LA yeah. and Vegas, a ridiculous amount of time. So. <laughs> all right. So favorite movie of all time. Oh, that's easy. Blazing Saddles. Okay. Mel Brooks. Okay. <laughs> and last one. If you didn't get in the AV industry, what would you be doing? You know, I honestly have no idea at all. It's, uh, I, it, it would still be something in, in, in the general theater world. You know, maybe if I, if I hadn't have taken the turn towards rock and roll and doing more of the corporate AV kind of stuff, I, you know, maybe I'd, maybe I'd be doing Broadway theater, you know, who knows, a summer stock director somewhere, (laughs) you know, maybe even teaching theater in a, in a, in a college or high school somewhere. That's, but I can, I can guarantee you it would have, uh, it would have still been somewhere in the lighting and theater realm because it just, I never really gave myself another option. It was always what I wanted to do. So. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Doyle, where can folks find you on the web and on uh, various social networks? Um, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Doyle Martin. I'll, uh, I'll pop up. There aren't a whole lot of us Doyle Martins out there. Um, on, uh, on the web, you can find us at www.tlsproductionsinc.com. Um, and uh, you know what? I'm not going to give you guys my Facebook. Find me on LinkedIn, and if we uh, hit it off, we might talk about <laughs> Facebook later. Are you on the Twitter? <laughs> um, I I am, but I'm an old guy, so my Twitter feed is actually just linked to my LinkedIn feed, so okay, it just okay. gets my LinkedIn posts. So yeah. you can you can Twitter me, but I'm probably not going to see it. Which after some of the stuff I've said here, is probably <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> Oh, very good. Very good. Well, Doyle, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, we'll have to coordinate talking after LDI so I can hear about all of these fantastic things that are happening at the show because I won't be able to make it this year. So let's definitely tune and uh, talk again. So thank you very much. Okay. Sounds good, Wallace. You have a good one. All righty.